They're stoning Stephen. And this is what he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He says that first, but then the last words on his lips are this. And falling on his knees, and the contrast is just so powerful of those filled with hate, his enemies to the extreme because of the preaching and teaching of the word of God. And Stephen, who, who is filled with the spirit, whose face we find in, in the other part of this passage like an angel that is calm, serene, able to respond to them, loving them. And we know, see, we know he loved them by this. His last words as the rocks crush the life out of him are these, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Riser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Now, what is Jesus' teaching on this law of love? He says, but I say to you again. He's going to say, look, this is what you are being taught. This is the the nature of the perversion, but I'm now going to bring the corrective. Here's Jesus' teaching on what this is supposed to be, how you are supposed to flesh this out. And he doesn't beat around the bush. He dives instantly for the heart of the matter. And that's the extent of love. Because the Pharisees, again, had excused themselves. We can love a little because there's only a few people we actually have to love. God hates everybody else too, so so can we. They were wrong on that count, and they were wrong on the expression of love that's supposed to be lavish, poured out upon others, not withheld, and poured out all the way down to whom? Jesus simply, he, he jumps right into the true issue, love your enemies. They were saying, love your neighbor, your friends, essentially. Those that are, that, that we, they would say God loves, the only ones that God loves, you can love those, And we define that, but Jesus says, no, you love your enemies. They said, hate your enemy. Jesus flips it around instantly and says, love your enemy. That's the command. Not to hate, but to love. And to love those who hate you. To love those who desire your harm. To love those who are directly sinning against you in a hostile way. The exact opposite of what the Pharisees were teaching. Now, before we go on here, we need to get a definition of love. And as I mentioned, there's going to be various nuances in the way that Jesus uses it or how we're going to apply it to the people he says are loving. But at, it, at its core, fundamentally, a biblical view of love, the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, the love that we are to shed to others is this. It is the Holy Spirit empowered delight to do everything commanded in God's word, to help another be conformed to the image of Christ, regardless of the cost the perceived worthiness of the person or what we might receive in return. The Holy Spirit empowered delight. It is something that the Spirit of God produces. First John is clear that no one who does not know God loves. As we will see, there are echoes of love. Jesus says, look, the tax collectors do a certain amount. The the Gentiles echo this love in a certain way, but you are supposed to live it truly. 
You are, you are the only ones capable of actually doing that. It is Holy Spirit empowered, and it's a delight. You see, it will not do some kind of remove any sort of affectional nature from love, and particularly in this passage. Because saying, there's no way you could have affection towards, or, or you could have any kind, of, uh, any kind of feelings for someone who was harming you or who was, who was in abject sin. Yes, you can. There is a kind of affection that can and must be demonstrated towards even the most vile of sinners. And why do I know that? Because Jesus had it. It was not just this rational, I will love you and I can't stand you. And we had affection even for the, the, the vilest of sinners and even at some levels for those who do not respond to him. There is an affection. It's a Holy Spirit empowered delight to do everything commanded in God's word. That is, love is bounded by scripture. That is so important. It is not bounded by your feelings. It is not bounded by culture. It is not bounded by what other people want back from you. It is bounded by scripture alone. The Holy Spirit empowered delight to do everything commanded in God's word to help another be conformed to the image of Christ. Some put in there that it is to do another's highest good. That's true. But there is only one highest good in the universe. And that is that we, as individuals, would reflect the nature of Christ. It's the highest good for any person, anytime, anywhere, any culture. Food is helpful and good if someone is dying. Medicine is, is good and necessary for the sick. Conformity to Christ, that is coming to a true knowledge of Christ in the gospel through repentance and faith and then ongoing sanctification is the highest need, the greatest good because it brings God the greatest glory. And that's what true love is. We're going to see it in just a minute. We'll flush it out even more when we consider communion. The Holy Spirit empowered delight to do everything commanded in God's word to help another be conformed to the image of Christ regardless of the cost. And in fact, in spite of the cost would probably be a better way to put that because love will always cost. Regardless of the cost, regardless of the perceived worthiness of the person, it is in that way that love is unconditional. Not that it does not desire other things or response, it does. It's unconditional and that the worthiness of the one being loved is never taken into consideration, not a single time. It is poured out regardless and really, again, in spite of the unworthiness of the object. And then regardless of what might be received in return. Love does not consider a reward. Love receives one, by the way, but it is not enacted to get something in return. That's the love that Jesus is talking about when he says, love your enemy, empowered by the spirit of God, affectional according to the affections of God himself, bounded by scripture, unconditional in its application regardless of cost or sacrifice and all for the purpose of seeing someone in right relationship with God and thus conform to the image of Christ. So when he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, the depth of this is unfathomable. It goes far beyond anything that a tax collector or a Gentile, that is as representatives of unbelievers, of those who have not been changed by the spirit of God. It goes far beyond what any non-kingdom citizen could ever do. Now, as always, I'd like to spend a moment, and there's, again, no place on your outline for this. You'll just have to maybe write it on the back, or I'm only going to get about, this is about as far as I'm going to get through the outline. I'll get like maybe one more point, but so you can write it in maybe on the bottom of your outline. This is what it doesn't mean. To love your neighbor does not mean that you don't confront them in sin. Excuse me, to love your enemy does not mean that you don't confront them in sin. Who were Jesus's greatest enemies? The Pharisees. 
the very religious leaders that he is really taking to task here. Did ever one time, did, did Jesus ever despise the Pharisees in his heart? Never. Did he ever look down upon them, dishonoring them and, and, and viewing them as chattel or worthless? Never. Not a single time because Jesus loved them. Because he loved his enemies. But that didn't mean he didn't confront them in sin. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. That's love in action. You see, the world doesn't like that kind of love. Love me, but just don't mess with my sin. Take me just right where I am and don't tell me anything about it. Fine to take someone where they are and then expose to them their need. Well, the love of the world doesn't want that. And unfortunately, so often the love of the church doesn't want that either. So to love your enemy doesn't mean you ignore your enemy's sin. Because clearly, if they're your enemy, the implication here is that they are sinning against you. That's the implication. It's a true enemy, not a perceived enemy, a real one. R.T. France says, A realistic assessment of what loving enemies might mean in practice must, of course, take account of the very robust way, I love that, robust way in which Jesus enacted or reacted the opposition of the scribes and Pharisees. Yeah, robust, I'll say it was. His concept of love is apparently not at the level of simply being nice to people and of allowing error to go unchallenged. Love is not incompatible with controversy and rebuke. In fact, it often brings it. So understand that that's not what it means. It doesn't mean you can't, to love your enemy doesn't mean you can't bring up your enemy's sin or even chastise your enemy for it. It doesn't mean that you don't, bring to bear consequences for an enemy's actions. And again, this is largely in the, in the more judicial sense or the broader sense. And you might remember the church discipline situation in first Corinthians chapter five, where there's a man who is essentially sleeping with his most likely his mother-in-law and the church was apparently again, saying something along the lines that we're supposed to love. And, and they were rejoicing in their love of uh, an acceptance of this person. Paul says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? We're just a loving congregation here. Well, you know, Jesus said, love your enemies. So even if they're doing wrong things, you just let them do what they want. No. Love in this case is to confront the individual and, and to put him outside the church. So ultimately he suffers the ravages of Satan through culture and through consequence so that he will return back to the church. So loving your enemy doesn't mean that you wouldn't bring consequences to bear if that's appropriate and where it is. Loving your enemy doesn't mean that you let them bring harm to your family or innocent people without, without thinking about it. We already talked about self-defense and other things that the scripture allows. Loving your enemy doesn't mean you invite them to be your best friend. Because this is sometimes what is asked of you. You have someone who is perhaps maybe perverting the law of God, walking away from the Lord. You start to, you know, you start to bring some, some confrontation to them. They go, wait a minute, I thought you loved me. And you start to say things like, hey, I can't have you be my best friend. There's just no way. We can't share the kind of intimacy we share. But I thought the scripture says love. No, love your enemies does not mean that you must invite them to be your best friend. 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You can still love them. You can care for them. You can pour out grace towards them. But it does not mean that they must somehow remain your intimate acquaintance. In fact, that wouldn't be loving at all. Because you would be pretending that Christ makes no difference. He does. He does. This also does not mean that you have to affirm or love their sin, that you have to overlook it, that you have to pretend that it's really good, 
No, it isn't that at all. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Those who fear the Lord love the Lord, and they hate evil. John MacArthur says it this way, We may sense their wickedness, that is, of our enemy, their unfairness, their ungodliness, and their hatred for us, and in light of these things, we could not possibly love them for what they are. We must love them because of who they are. Sinners fallen from the image of God and in desperate need of God's forgiveness and grace, just as we were. There, but for the grace of God, go you in every sinner that you see. In the vilest of offenders is you apart from the grace of God. So there is no one that we cannot love. And really that's the If we want to flesh out, then what does it mean? In the bigger picture, it means this. No one is ever excluded from being loved regardless of the vileness of their offense or how harmful it is to you. No one. So again, what this does not mean doesn't hold a candle essentially to what it does mean. And when someone is harming you, dishonoring you, treating you in a worthless fashion, you are to pour back out towards them a delightful service, which does everything that scripture commands to see them walking in a manner that would please the Lord. Love's question is never who to love because we are to love everyone, but only how to love most biblically. We are not to love only in terms of feeling, but also in terms of service. God's love embraces the entire world. He loved each of us even while we were still sinners and while we were his enemies. And so in the big picture, love means to love everyone. And Jesus goes to the very bottom level when he says enemies. And additionally, it always means looking for a way to bring the gospel to bear. Always. Love cannot be love unless Christ is exalted through the proclamation of the gospel. That's essential to love. 1 John 4, 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The fundamental, the, the, the most basic issue in love is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is lifted high because that is the most loving thing that you could ever do. And certainly it is what an enemy needs. Now, I said going loving your enemies is Jesus goes right to the bottom level. Well, not exactly because there is someone, essentially there are various kinds of enemies, aren't there? There are enemies who just dislike you a little bit. There are enemies who may be told some, you know, who gossiped about you some. There, there are various kinds of enemies. And so Jesus now is going to go even further. So look back at your text, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That would be the active enemy. The enemy who comes against you to bring you harm. And this word is most often used in regard to your faith. The fact that you are a member of the kingdom, that is why you are coming under attack. And consider it, the the way that you are seeking to be most loving, you are bringing to them the best news. You are providing for them the very way in which they could be saved from eternal hell and they turn it around and begin to persecute you and attack you and harm you. And in the greatness of that reversal, it is so easy to get angry and to be bitter 
And in, in trying to do the very best for them, they would turn it on you and do the worst to you. And that's why Jesus says, you pray for your persecutors. It is the application also that he brings that we are to pray. And, and you might be thinking, well, I mean, that seems a little weak, right? Just prayer. I mean, all I have to do is pray for my persecutors. I want you to consider it this way. I, I think what is, what is in mind or what is in view here because certainly Jesus speaks of a robust response to enemies in providing them food and drink and, and ministering to their needs. I think the picture that we have here is you have been persecuted to the point where literally you can do nothing else. When the nails are being driven into your hands or the spear being driven into your heart or, or the insults being, being hurled at you with no other recourse, there's no other way to serve or minister to this enemy than, than what represents your true love for him is when there no, was nothing else to do, you pour out your heart in prayer for them. And when you get to that point and you can pray for your enemies, then you are demonstrating the reality of what Jesus is commanding here. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Persecutors are the most difficult enemies to love. And certainly we understand, and I'm sure what has leapt to your mind is the very example of Jesus himself. Certainly he served his enemies. Certainly he gave to them. Certainly he healed them. Certainly he gave them food. He provided for them. But when he could do nothing else, as it were, he was in fact providing everything for them when he died on the cross. But as he dies there, as they nail his hands to the cross and his feet to the cross. What does he do with with nothing else as it were to do? The heart of the love of Jesus for his enemies is expressed in Luke 23, 34. But Jesus was saying, and it's very interesting. It would appear that the saying there's in the imperfect tense on and on and on. This wasn't a one time message. He was saying he was praying. Very possibly he begins praying when he goes as, as he's nailed to the cross, prays all the way through Sometimes perhaps it being audible, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. They cast lots, dividing up his garment among themselves as he prays for their forgiveness. The Roman soldiers at the cross cast dice for, to, to rip up his, the, the phony robe that they gave him, mocking him as king. As the scribes and Pharisees walk by, hurling insults, and certainly this forgive them extends to those beyond the base of the cross, out into the crowd, and literally out into, into Israel as a whole. Those who had hours before said, crucify him, and we will take responsibility. We and our children will take responsibility for his blood. Jesus is saying, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing they're calling him the scribes and pharisees mocking him saying if you are the savior save yourself you moron you fool and jesus is saying forgive them did that mean that all of them were saved that the instant will receive that forgiveness it does not it does mean it's the heart of jesus that they would repent and believe even as they killed him but it may yet be that you consider that example and Although we know that Jesus was a man acting in the power of the spirit, even as he was fully and completely God, the God man, it may be that you're like, well, I mean, that's Jesus. People don't do that. Oh, but there's another illustration coming to mind, isn't it? I see it on your face. It's Stephen. He was a man, not God, but a man, what? Filled with the spirit of God. And in Acts chapter seven, I want you to turn there as, as we start moving towards communion. In Acts chapter seven, we have really at verse chapter six and seven, we have the response 
of Stephen to accusations that he was a blasphemer, that he blasphemed Moses, blasphemed the temple, blasphemed God, blasphemed the law, blasphemed the Messiah or the true deliverer. And so he responds to all of those accusations and it begins, I don't have time to flush it out for you, it begins when in, in chapter six, we find out that he's a man full of the spirit. He's brought, he's dragged before the, the, the Sanhedrin with false witnesses. He begins his defense in chapter seven. And I've just been listening to a, an excellent series by, by John MacArthur on the defense of Stephen. And guys, if, if you don't take time to listen to sermons, you ought to. Go to Grace to You, start downloading some of these things, get one, get that particular series, just masterful. And it's not because it's John MacArthur, he's preaching the word. So find people that will preach the word. It's just been resonating in my mind. And, and by the Lord's grace, fit beautifully with what we were talking about this morning, which is the way it often works, by the way. That's why you listen to sermons. So he makes his whole defense. And as he reaches the end of that defense in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, excuse me, verse 54, they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Actually, let's jump back up to verse 51. You men who are stiff necked. Now he finishes his defense saying, look, I love Moses. Moses was great. I love the law that Moses, that God gave Moses to write. I love the temple. I love the prophets of God. I love the Messiah. You're the one that hates all of those. You are the ones that have, that have blasphemed. You are the ones that have rejected Moses and the law and the Messiah and the temple and God. You've rejected them all. I haven't. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And I tell you that Stephen said all of this with a heart of love for those Pharisees and scribes. How do I know that? We'll see it in just a minute. This was not said out of rancor. It was not said out of anger. It was not said out of self-righteousness and arrogance. It was said out of greatest love for them so that they would understand who they truly are. And that's how the gospel is presented. But it was strong. It was powerful. It was Holy Spirit inspired. And again, it says from the very beginning, Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 53, you received the laws ordained by angels that you do not keep it. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, I'll bet. They began gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit. And please understand that that was not some one-time filling, some special empowerment so that he could come. No, he started full of the Spirit. He ends full of the Spirit. He preaches in the Spirit. And that's the same thing that every one of us is called to be, constantly filled with the Spirit. This is possible for every believer because you have the fullness of the Spirit indwelling you. And Galatians, or Ephesians 5 says you are to be continually filled with the Spirit. Stephen was, and this is what happens. So as they rush to kill him, he, he remains full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried with a loud voice, covered their ears, rushed at him with one impulse. They were driven insane in their anger. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. The witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen. So they rush at him. They push him over a cliff. They begin to throw rocks at him after taking a moment to lay aside their robes because they can't, the robes will catch as they try to throw the rocks. So they need to get them, get them off. They're stoning Stephen. And this is what he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He says that first, but then the last words on his lips are this. And falling on his knees, and the contrast is just so powerful of those filled with hate, his enemies to the extreme because of the preaching and teaching of the word of God. And Stephen, who, who is filled with the spirit, 
whose face we find in, in the other part of this passage like an angel that is calm, serene, able to respond to them, loving them. And we know, see, we know he loved them by this. His last words as the rocks crush the life out of him are these, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Which is why I believe Jesus says, pray for your persecutors. Stephen had no, re- there's nothing else to do. There's no way to serve them. No, he, he'd, done, he'd done everything. And the last thing that he could do is he's, the life is crushed out of him by his persecutors. The last act of love that he could possibly commit is prayer. And he does it. So man, filled with the spirit of God. True Christian martyrs do not die with curses on their lips, but with blessings and prayers. Read your history. It began with Jesus. Moves out into Stephen, the first martyr that we see directly. First one we hear from. And then moves out into church history. Read your Fox's book of martyrs. William Tyndale didn't go to the stake cursing his persecutors. Screaming at them for the injustice done to him. Instead, he cries out, God, open the eyes of the king of England. The very one who had stuck him on the stake and was burning him to death, essentially. They're the love of God is poured out through William Tyndale and martyr after martyr after martyr. I ask you, can we do less? And you might not be being placed upon the stake now, but remember Jesus is making an argument from the greater to the lesser. If you can pray for your persecutors when they're killing you, can we not pray for those who are maybe gossiping about us or sinning in some way towards us as harmful as it may be? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And next week we will talk about the fact that you do that because that's what God does. And we've already seen that in Jesus. But now as we move to communion, if the men will come forward to begin to prepare, I just want to bring you back to where I started, which is John 3.16. As we consider the nature of what is here and the challenge that we have before us in contemplating and responding to the sacrifice of Christ, let's just consider the love of God displayed on the cross. And you might've wondered about my definition of love. Where did you get that? Well, I got it from John three sixteen. It says this for God. So loved God is love. He was driven and motivated by love. Everything he does is done in love. There's nothing that he does that is outside of his love, his wrath, his jealousy, his holiness, all this bound up. He's a loving God who pursues everything he does in love. God desired that the people of the world be restored to right relationship with himself. This is for their greatest good and it is for his greatest glory. For God so loved the world that he gave. The essence of love is to sacrifice. This is what God eternally does. From before the beginning of time, it was determined that God would sacrifice in this way. He is eternally giving, eternally generating, eternally loving, sacrificing For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When God gives, he gives the very best. He gives that which will meet the need. It is always sufficient. And in this case, infinitely sufficient to meet the need. His unique one and only beloved son. Not a lesser being, not a created being to send down and and, and just get in the way so that he might pour wrath upon that, that, that straw man. No, pouring his own wrath upon his own son whom he loved infinitely. This is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
so that, or that whosoever believes in him might not perish. Here's the motive of a love driven by mercy that desires to save man from the certain judgment he deserves, that of punishment in hell forever. This is what love always does. It longs to give mercy, to withhold from the one who deserves full punishment, that punishment, to provide the way in which that withholding might be justly done. This is what love longs for. Do you long for mercy for those who are currently harming our culture, harming our people, and maybe harming you? Do you long that they would receive mercy? God does. That whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Here's the additional aspect of love exemplified in grace in which God desires to provide for the sinner that which he does not deserve, eternal, abundant, joyful life in perfect relationship to Father, Son, and Spirit. Is that what you long for for your enemies? That above all things you would desire for mercy to be shown them that they would not receive the punishment that they deserve and for grace to be given to them that they would receive that which they could never deserve, which is eternal life in perfect relationship with God. It is what he has given you. Can we not? Would we not? Must we not long for that for others? We must. It is the heart of the gospel and is the heart of what we celebrate here. Because we were that enemy. And we were the one who despised and dishonored God in every way. So really two aspects of of what I hope you will do as we pass the elements. First would be that you would grieve. That you would grieve over a lack of love in your own heart. As I grieve over mine. As I've grieved over it this week, as I look at my life and see that I do not live this fully, but it is my longing. And I grieve over the places that I don't do it. And I pray that you would, and I pray that you would repent. But I ask also that you would rejoice at the love of God demonstrated for you that covers your lack of love. That overcomes for you the love that you cannot give. It has provided that love in your place. So there's both a grieving and repenting and a rejoicing that will come from our celebration of communion. And might the Lord grant you grace to pursue that as we pass the elements. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. 
Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.